0: Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about Oxio Health, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama.
1: Welcome to podcast number five. My name is Noel Guillama. I'd like to introduce my co-host Carl Larson. Good afternoon Noel, That's good to be here and uh, looking
0: forward to this podcast. Uh, changing payer environment, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. And from the layman's side, uh, it evokes a lot of questions such as, first of all, what is a payer? Well,
1: that's a really good question. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, I, I guess you could say that it's industry jargon. Okay, but it, it means a lot. And if you're in healthcare, anybody in healthcare, which is a lot of people as we've talked about in previous you know, podcasts, um, payers really important. So normally we think of, health, of other industries as a consumer. And usually the consumer is, is the payer. They're the ones that buy the house, they finance it, they buy a car, they finance it, they go to the store and they buy it. So it's it sort of every, almost every industry the the consumer is sort of the buyer. Obviously, forget about corporate America and things like that if they want to buy something. Um, but the the word payer uh, is effectively who pays because we in the United States have a unique economic model for healthcare. Almost all the developed world, and certainly even the, the developing world, it, they have some form of national healthcare. Whether you call it government, you know, uh, pay, a single payer, or you call it nationalized healthcare or socialized medicine. Basically, the government is the payer. So in Germany, they have different regions, for example, and, and the, it, it, it's part of the services of, a, of, of the government to provide the care, uh, even if it's done uh, in a private clinic type of environment or private practice or government-run practice. In some countries, uh, they have a hybrid. Uh, it used to be many uh, government-run. In the United States, generally the payer, uh, the single largest payers we discuss in podcast number two is a federal government, federal, state, and local governments. And that literally means Medicare, Medicaid, the VA. Um, uh, the government is an employer, okay? Um, and that, that applies uh, obviously for the state governments, the local governments. So the payer in that case is literally the government. The government writes a check based on usually a fee structure, Medicare, Medicaid fee structure. Um, and then beyond the next level below that, I guess you could say, is you know plus or minus 150 million people that get healthcare through their employer. In the employer category, there's a, basically two big buckets. One are the employers that, that use an insurance company, the largest insurance company, United Healthcare, Anthem, Humana, to basically manage the benefit to their employees. And effectively, what that happens is the insurance company charges a, 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 an annual or a monthly fee for the benefits of providing the care, and they, they basically manage the entire care. The employer writes a check, you know, minus whatever the employee uh, pays. So you have sort of a, a, a insurance company-driven uh, healthcare model where the insurance company is the payer. They actually are the ones who write the checks to the individual doctors, the hospitals, et cetera. Uh, The next category are effectively what we call the ERISA plans. ERISA plans are, it's employer sponsored healthcare. That means that they self-insure, which is a very common term, uh, and they set aside X amount of their revenues or their cost base, and they sometimes use a third party administrator to sort of do the administrative part, but effectively they are self-insured. So in that case, the employer, is the payer. The third party is almost like a bank. It really is It's handling the administrative, uh, ministerial work of paying the claims. Um, but those are sort of the big buckets of, of payers. Uh, in there, you have some opportunities for changes. So you have uh, what's has tr- tr- traditionally been sort of uh, regular insurance uh, or indemnity insurance, basically whatever it costs. They either pay a, a percentage of the bill or they pay you a flat, you know, per diem kind of or per day type of rate. Um, you also have managed care companies or HMOs, generally associated with a gatekeeper. It means you have a, a person, an individual doctor who is your primary gatekeeper, and they control the access to all of your referrals.
0: Well, that's a lot of excellent information, Noel, and it raises a question though. What is a gatekeeper? You mentioned the term. What is what is a gatekeeper? How does that I, we we kind of have an idea about that, but what does that mean with respect to what we're talking about? Sure.
1: I mean, the gatekeeper concept and idea really started back when, when managed care, HMOs, really took roots. In, uh, you won't believe it, but most of it was actually here in South Florida. Um, and, and the idea behind that is that you needed somebody to, as you would say in football, sort of be the quarterback. Somebody has to uh, know that patient well enough to direct them. Um, and uh, so that gatekeeper, almost every case is a primary care uh, f- internist. It can be, it can be family practice. Uh, in, in some cases, depending, it could be the you know sort of the OBGYN. gyn um, And in some extreme cases, it could be cardiologist because the person's primary problem is cardiology. And they're generally paid. Certainly, when we get into the sort of the managed care part of it, they're usually paid for those services. Medicare now pays for the doctors to coordinate care, and that's a, that's a, just another evolution of the world, gatekeeper. In the managed care world, insurance companies literally pay the gatekeeper or their primary care physician either a capitation, which is sort of a flat rate per member per month, PMPM, PM, to basically be that coordinator, or they pay them traditional fee for service and then a coordination fee uh, to do that. The, what a gatekeeper does generally, it should give you better quality of care, because he is effectively the coordinator. Um, and and one of the things that we have talked about in the past in, in healthcare is sort of the lack of coordination, or EMRs, the interoperability that doctors sometimes don't know what other doctors are doing, especially when the the the, the patient is self-directed. So one of the other things that, 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 so that does generally, it does reduce costs because it should reduce redundancy inefficiencies in the system. Um, some people uh, choose for, like say let's call it a third option, which is an insurance company, but then they wanna get a PPO, which is a preferred provider organization type of model. And that basically says you're gonna pay this premium and it's not gonna be the indemnity that we talked about. Basically, we'll pay 80% of all the costs anywhere you go, in theory. Um, uh, or a managed care environment uh, which with the gatekeeper that says you can only go to these doctors and if you wanna go beyond these doctors, you have to get pre-approval. The other one model is sort of a PPO and this applies, by the way, in all kinds of payers. So the federal government has PPOs for, for, for Medicare, in, in Medicare Advantage for Medicare. Employers may have a PPO. As a matter of fact, many of the large insurance company, employers have multiple insurance companies and multiple products. So let's pick arbitrarily, you know, it's like IBM. If you're working for IBM, they're gonna give you sort of what they call a cafeteria plan, which is basically say, um, IBM's gonna pay either a flat rate or a percentage of a premium. You could choose, depending on, on your healthcare condition, to go with effectively an indemnity plan, which is sort of unlimited as far as where you can go. You can go with a, a PPO plan, which is usually a lower, much lower premium, or you can go to an HMO plan, which is usually a much, much lower premium. Uh, And that gives the individual employee, in this case, the flexibility to adapt to A, their healthcare condition and also what they wanna pay. Um, In all cases, the managed care, the HMO plan, um, and the what I call managed care, is going to be the lowest cost uh, for the employee. Why is that? Well, because of the limitations of what I call, we go back to that gatekeeper, the original question, Mm -hmm. is that allows the insurance company or the payer that we talked about to control the cost and and it makes sure that there's optimum quality because they can pick the doctors. I can tell you that when I ran health systems, we did not pick the the, the least expensive or the cheapest doctors. We actually picked the doctors that were the most efficient doctors. Even if he cost more money up front, we generally had the data to say this doctor has a lower uh, uh, complexity uh, rate that uh, you know eventually causes hospital admission. So it, it, that that doctor merited being paid more because they were they were just much more effective, much more efficient. And that's not just it's not an issue of just equality. It's not that I'm not saying that. That, that, that quality uh, was, was the only change, but sometimes um, by the doctor spending more time, more energy, getting paid more, he had the ability, he or she had the ability to just get a better outcome, and that's something that's very, very important. One of the things that we have found uh, doing a lot of studies is that the lowest cost provider, the lowest cost hospital, the lowest cost anything is not always the best. And, and it, but by the way, on the opposite side, the most expensive doctor, the most expensive hospital, the most health system is almost never the best either. Uh, there's something in the middle where you've got sort of, sort of I hate to say it, sort of cost-benefit analysis. So what the payer's trying to do, and people don't understand this, and I've given speeches about this with people that are sort of anti-HMO, anti-managed care, and particularly for Medicare Advantage, I'm like, you should make those assumptions. I can tell you that both of my parents, when they qualified for for Medicare, they both, with some of my suggestions, went into managed care plans. And what people don't understand is that, yes, it it may reduce your limitations. It's to the specialist, go at will, which is not always a good idea. Uh, Sometimes, not in Florida as much, but sometimes you have limitations of what hospital you can go to. Um, but what that does is that puts the doctor generally, certainly the payer, in the incentive to keep you the healthiest possible. And back when the HMO industry started, uh, it was not always that way, i got to tell you, watching it and, and being part of it. Um, and, 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 and the reason for that is it was something called velocity. Patients would only spend two to three years in an HMO, and then they switched to another one and they switched to another one. But over over the last 20 years for sure, and in particular the last 10 years, when in particular Medicare has made those open enrollments more restrictive and the HMO uh, and the insurance companies have been more competitive, the velocity has probably dropped by a third. So instead of, so the average lifespan on a, on a health plan is probably extended uh, at least three times what it used to be. And it was actually less than two years originally. I, I, I gotta correct that. Um, And so what I advise to people, if you have a a fixed budget, doesn't matter how much, but it's fixed, um, you have two options, particularly Medicare, is you can go to a HMO plan and understand that they have an incentive. They really, really do, because I can tell you, I was on the other side and getting those payments, and we had an incentive to provide the best possible care. We want to get the patients out of the hospital healthy and maintain them as healthy as we could as an, as an organization, because that's where we also were financially rewarded. Um, th- that, so that's an option. The other option is you can get what's called a supplemental plan, where you uh, pay an insurance company to sort of bridge the cost from a fee-for-service, which Medicare is, normally pays 80% of, of their allowed charges. The, co- the consumer, or in this case, the patient is responsible for the 20%. So it, it's really complex and it's really difficult. And so when you use the word payer, uh, it, it blows over people's heads because they don't understand it, but it's incredibly important. And part of the problem with the, that we have in healthcare is that all of that dis- that I just described also increases cost. There's a lot of paperwork. And you know, by multiple estimates, in, from the Congressional Budget Office to, to, the, to uh, other foundations, including the Kaufman Foundation, is that they've determined that somewhere between 25 and 30% of healthcare care cost are not related to health care. They are literally administrative paperwork, billing, collection, processing a claim, paying a claim. Regulatory de- compliance. Denial, compliance. Mm-hmm. There is a, a healthy amount of overutilization, and part of that is because of lack of communication. So that's something that you try to limit when you have a gatekeeper. And, and there is a, I hate to say, sort of a healthy amount of, of, of fraud and abuse. Uh, but those are—they're not—they're big numbers in a growth scale, but they're, they're, it is only part of that thirty percent. So one of the, so one of the things that everybody's trying to always tackle is how do we reduce that paperwork that we've talked about in other podcasts? How do we reduce the building? I I know doctors that have a modest practice, a couple of thousand patients, seeing thirty patients a day, and they have one or two employees that their primary job is to call insurance companies and get pre-authorization, they call insurance companies and get, um, uh, handle questions about billing, about payments, and then generally they also have a billing company that's handling those paperwork. Hmm. So what happens is that a tremendous amount of that, of the healthcare business, is just processing the paperwork. It's not uncommon, especially when you get the specialists like uh, orthopedics or cardiologists, for a doctor to pay six, seven, eight, nine percent of their collected charges to a billing company. Now they're providing a great service, and I'm not against billing company, but that's a lot of transactions uh, cost to do that. Plus, again, going back to referrals, eligibility, all of those things have to be done. And even though we, we have the capacity to use technology to do more of that, it isn't as effective. Um, I think I remember last year that the the uh, director, of uh, the Secretary of, of, of Health and Human Services talked about that still 60, 70% of healthcare um, was being done by, by, by fax machines, you know, paper, fax machine phone calls. And in, in, in the days of the internet and of IOT devices and, and smartphones, really, well, in a weird way, it's sort of simple for the doctors. But that goes back to all of the costs of administrating. This. So th- there's tremendous opportunity by simplification, and that's one of the things that I can tell you, and we can talk about, is that I see the future driving much more, much more aggressively towards <laughs> managed care, where the 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 insurance company, the the healthcare system is providing, is actually looking at the the the, the, the sort of the 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 body, the mind, and the spirit right. of that consumer. Holistic. Much more holistic is where the future clearly belongs. Um, because that is that is the most effective for the patient as far as quality of life. And in and in 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 it, it may not be intuitive, but it's also the most cost effective.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's
1: clearly a
0: complex uh, complex topic, um, and you've done a very good job of explaining it. I'm sure people who are listening to the podcast are going to uh, go back and listen again two or three times because of the amount of information that's out here. But let me just see if I can... Can consolidate some of this for for myself. It seems that you've described a sort of a continuum when it comes to healthcare delivery, um, in the sense that, say, a what we would refer to as a concierge plan is one in which the patient really has the most control over their own their own uh, healthcare, in the sense who they see and and so on up to then moving along the continuum to a PPO, where they, they have uh, a little more selection, a little a little bit more uh, of their own decision about who they see, what, what physicians they see, to the HMO that's really providing a lot of direction within what I think is called a network, I think, correct? Is that the right term? And then to um, a fully government run healthcare system where the government really makes a decision
1: about the healthcare for the patient for the most part. Is that, is that fair or is it? Um... Yeah, it, it is. And, and one of the things that, that, that people sort of don't understand is how sort of we got here. It, it, yeah. We in the United States got here. How did, how did we um, end up with insurance companies
0: to begin with?
1: Right, right. so what, what happened, what, what made a big difference, and we go back to the 1920s, in the 1920s, um, obviously some smart people um, came up with the idea to create a form of insurance um, that really was originally called a sort of Blue Cross, okay? And we know the name today, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, what people don't know is a history. Blue Cross, Blue, Blue Cross was effectively a hospital indemnity program that basically said, if you pay us this rate, it was like literally five or six dollars a month kind of thing. Um, then we will provide you these hospital-based services. Eventually, that idea, and I think it started originally in in in, uh, in Texas, um, is became uh, a program under the American Hospital Association that was called Blue Cross. On the other side, and I think this was in California, there were a group of doctors that created Blue Shield, and they were, you know, what we would today call sort of the a, a, a subscription service, today it'd be called a subscription service, that basically said, We will provide you these basic services for this much per month. And for a number of years, those two organizations you know, sort of worked parallel. And, uh, and it wasn't back even in the 60s, uh, I remember my father getting insurance, and there were two different plans. It was sort of Blue Cross and Blue Shield separately. And I don't remember when they merged, and that's probably not as important, but eventually they merged. Um, so that that's one parallel, right? On the other parallel, we go back to World War II, and and I think we talked about in one of our our last podcasts sort of how uh, insurance companies, traditional insurance companies, uh, were created. Because by the way, Blue Cross and Blue Shield were effectively nonprofits, which most of them were until maybe just a decade ago. They were just basically vehicles for the hospitals and the doctors. Uh, but it was in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen forties, in particularly Kaiser. Uh, who was a shipbuilder for the United States Navy, um, was having challenges hiring people, I think it was also California, to build his ships. And because there were wage freezes, he couldn't pay people more, so he came up with the idea to provide health insurance as part of employment. And that really became the catalyst that eventually led to the full-blown insurance companies in the United States, so that by the time at the end of the war, you know, came, um, in Europe, in the developed world, they basically effectively created nationalized healthcare because there was nothing left. So they started from scratch as a benefit of citizenship, let's call it. The United States sort of had, the, again, the Blue Cross on one side, the Blue Shield, and then all of a sudden now you had the input of what became Kaiser Permanente, uh, which then is ingrained employer-sponsored healthcare to this day. And so that became a huge payer. The people that, that are looking into the future are seeing, and we've tried doing this a couple of times, is we're putting the consumer back in control of their health care. And one of the ways that you could do it is by, you know, health savings account. And it's it's been around for a long time. It hasn't been perfected. And the idea was that the employer would basically pay X amount of money to the consumer a in a in a, um, a tax advantage way they would be in a health savings account and then the consumer would pay from there and then they would have effectively uh, catastrophic health care or we, we would back to those days what used to be you know blue cross which is hospitalization mm-hmm. that would didn't cover anything outside the plan has been uh, for for a number of decades is to put the consumer in charge which then leads into something else we'll talk about in the future, about price transparency, about publishing prices, because the government is very much into that. Because in every other industry, the consumer has a lot to say about pricing and quality and everything else, and in healthcare it doesn't. Part of the problem is because the user of healthcare, we as, as, as consumers or employees generally do not pay for the, the healthcare. It is actually paid by the payers, so we're going full circle back to the payers. It's paid by the government, the employers, etc. And 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 we have a disconnect. So that's why, at least until recently, I, I'm starting to see the changes. You have not had the consumerism change healthcare. Now I think that's changed. I think we're, irretrievably it's changed. So that over the next few years, certainly over the next decade, you're going to see much more consumer-driven healthcare. Where consumers are going to be the driver because they're going to control the, the the payment, they're going to control the quality, they're going to control you know their their rating on Yelp or whatever their ratings are. So the, that, but that's only because the consumer has the ability to now control much more of the cost, and that's without question that's going to be the future. So the future's going to be a lot more managed care, a lot more consumerism in care, um, and 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 systems and 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 providers are going to be judged. On the quality of care, not based on bureaucrats in 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 the capital or or in Washington D.C., but based on their quality to the consumer.
0: Wow. Well, at, you know, it seems like we've had a um, some ex- extraordinary evolution. I'll put it that way, in um, in the uh, in healthcare in the in the payer marketplace, and um, I I'm curious how you see um, the delivery of of healthcare in the United States in the sort of the capitalist market type of of, of program that we have in the U.S. with respect to the payers. Versus the healthcare delivery in some of the other nations that are really fundamentally a a totally government-run and government-paid uh, payer system, where you have you have actually hospitals and doctors that work for the government.
1: They're not they're not really even
0: uh, private uh, practices per se.
1: Well, one of the things that, that is obvious, and it goes back to, again, what we've talked before, sort of the baby boomers, that it's really a worldwide phenomenon, and we'll talk about that in the future, about sort of the the the, the, the graying of the world or the silver revolution, um, which are very big key. Uh, what you're, you're seeing is that even in socialized, even in government-run healthcare, they're having a problem. Um, what they don't have is the opportunity to convert very easily, they're they're trying is to convert that now to the consumerism. The United States model, for all the flaws that it has, has much more capacity to change to the consumer-centric healthcare, which is without a question the future, mm-hmm. because the consumer is much more in charge. It's more more the, resilient, right? The, yeah. the, the, all the hospitals, if you it, where we live, you get on the highway, you'll see the big billboards about the hospitals advertising to come for you to come to see them if you have an emergency, in particularly doctors are starting to now do you know, uh, blogs and podcasts and, and be much more aware of social media in, in a positive sense. So the, the, uh, the, the irony is that the advantage that socialized, government-run healthcare has had for the last 60, 70 years is actually diminishing because the future, almost in every scenario, belongs to the consumer and to transparency so that people are gonna be much more vulnerable um, to being referred to another doctor based on the quality and outcomes. So that, it, and that goes back to my conversation before about why some people are very uh, determined that a health savings account, that a consumer-driven healthcare is going to help healthcare in a material way. Now, let me give you the other side, because always, I always look about it from the physician perspective. Historically, the physicians have always thought they do the best in a fee-for-service environment, and that may have been the case, you know, like I said, 40, 50 years ago, um, sort of reminds me of the, the old TV com- uh, program of Marcus Wall, BMD, you know, where the doctors literally I have seen um, uh, old receipts where p- babies were delivered and the cost was like $92, you know, back back in the 20s and 30s. Um, and that's what people pay. Today, one of the biggest problems, and we we'll have to talk about this when we talk about price transparency, is it is not uncommon to go to the hospital for some need and, and get a $100,000 gross bill. Okay, that's, if you add everything up, the comes out $100,000, and then the insurance company sends you what's called an explanation of benefits, and they say, well, the $100,000, you can ignore it. We're discounting based on contractual, okay? Um, of that, (laughs) okay? So you got sort of an adjusted $20,000. They're gonna take another couple of haircuts and they're gonna pay the hospital $15,000 and you might own, you know, $500, $1,000, depending on what your your copay and deductibles are. And and, and people look at that as like, how could you get a $100,000 bill that somehow is discounted by 70 or 80% and get them this number, and, and that's really the hardest thing for people to understand, because it happens every day. It's not rare, it happens all the time, because of the way that the hospital charge, the way the doctors charge, by the way, the same thing can happen with doctors, is you'll, you'll if you see a bill from a doctor from a primary care, um, extended office visit, it would not be uncommon to see a three or four hundred dollar bill, um, I think the doctor would be lucky to get $125, which, by the way, it's one of the things that causes stress that we've talked about before with a doctor, okay? Because they don't know what they're going to get. It's sort of a surprise. It's a surprise for the consumer, okay? Okay, what am I going to? What is the bill? What am I going to owe? It's totally. Uh, and on the other side, the doctor says, "Okay, I know I spent 15 minutes with the with this patient. Okay, I submitted the bill based on what's called usual and customary." That doctor, if most of the time, and I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating just a little bit because he doesn't know which insurance company. Typical doctor has 10, 20, 30 insurance companies. And if he really drilled down, he could figure it out. But the summary is he really has no idea what he's gonna get paid. In some cases, he may not get paid because of the deductible co-pays and things like that, so they gotta go chase that. That's, that's, that's all part of, badly, the inefficiency of healthcare delivery in the United States. Um, the good thing is I think all of that is aligning around the consumer and I think that's a positive.
0: Well, I, I find that interesting. I guess one of the questions I would ask is to what degree is the, now that the consumer is becoming more involved in, in their healthcare in a sense, to what degree is the education of the consumer improving and, and a more educated consumer as a patient, how is that affecting healthcare?
1: You sound like a commercial there for a second. Um, I wanted to be. The, the reality right. is that the consumer, without question, is getting more educated. I and you think about what our maybe our grandparents uh, went to see the doctor, and and the doctor was you know the ultimate voice and sort of godlike is is sort of the the pretentious. Um, maybe our parents were a little bit more more difficult and challenging to the doctor. I can tell you that, it, 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 I know you are, because I, I know you, but even in my case, I will challenge a doctor, what does this mean? And the reason, one of the things that's changed everything, and it just changes for so many things, including you know, literally the, this podcast, is the internet. Now it is very typical that, that you will Google, people joke about Dr. Google, and say, well I've got this condition, this condition, that condition, you Google that, and all of a sudden you get reams of information. And you may, I'm not saying you should take that advice by the way, but now you walk into the doctor's office, okay, and, and I've seen this, and I know people that do this, I have this, it's terminal, I'm gonna die. <laughs> and the doctor's like, where'd you get that? And, and usually it's Google or, or something else. Um, and, and so, but, but the positive side of that is, is information, okay? Um, I see the, the internet for healthcare sort of what the Gutenberg press did for knowledge. So most of it is good, most of it is informative. I can tell you that I've had some healthcare conditions that, that our doctors were struggling with it and I went to Google and I went to you know very reputable sites, the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, and all of a sudden, Whoa, well this medication sometimes interacts with this medication or that. And so that's value, so I walk in and um, sometimes my doctor says, okay, what, what did your research tell you? Before I tell you what I think is wrong, what do you think is wrong? And, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm right most of the time even, but it, 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 what I'm trying to say is that consumer is much more educated. So the doctor-patient relationship has become more collaborative then. That's the perfect word. I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. It is now collaborative. And by the way, the same thing now with the payers. I can tell you that I'm a little overweight. I'm not going to admit it, but I, I should. Um, my insurance company is paying uh, for any services that I want. They paid for the scale that I have, IoT device that connects to to, to my phone. Um, they offered to pay for a, a Fitbit, or which is you know obviously a wearable device. So now that what I see is a future. Uh, is that collaboration is not just this distant insurance company, but now it's engaged. Telemedicine is allowing for that much better. You can now literally go to your insurance company and and and, and talk about your condition, so they can refer you where you want to go. So that collaboration between the patient, uh, the payer, and the provider is, is getting much more intimate, um, and that's unique. That's a poz- That's why I'm so excited about healthcare because I see that continue to grow. The only thing that we're missing, and you know I have some, some interest in this, so I'll disclose that, is I think that one of the things is missing is the economic benefit to the patient. I think that we as, as employers, we as payers, insurance companies, and government, should literally be paying consumers to get healthier. And that's something that some people might think it you know either evolutionary, revolutionary or regressive. But that's one of the things that people are driven by economic benefit. In the old days, uh, an insurance company could deny you coverage because of your lifestyle. Today, thank God, uh, they can't do that anymore. Right. The government basically says you cannot discriminate people for pre-existing condition. That's a positive society, no question about sure. it. it. doesn't matter. Sure. Now we need to then take that on the other side and says, okay, you can be denied, but you know, oh, if you lost 20 pounds, we'd give you $1,000. or or a number, because by the way, they might save that or they should save a number. Right. So healthier consumer reduces the cost of healthcare, so they should, in my opinion, participate in that cost savings.
0: Sure, well the better communication between the doctor and patient, the better the doctor is able to actually diagnose what's going on, right? I mean, the better the the information, the more the information, and, and whether that's verbal communication from the patient or from an iot device or whatever i mean that's
1: valuable information to the physician absolutely i mean think about it when i look at healthcare the first opportunity to to use sort of technology in healthcare was originally the telephone Mm -hmm. okay that was that was a way you could call a doctor bring up and and, you know sort of the first telemedicine uh today you could use your iphone and literally have a video chat with your doctor show them doctors uh what's going on certainly you could text in a secure environment uh, so that that those lines are getting blurred, so that eventually again the payer side is going to get blurred, the provider side is going to get blurred. Blurred, and I am an optimist, and I see that at providing better quality of care at lower cost. You cannot provide, you cannot get lower costs without providing better quality, and we know that from manufacturing. and You know that from from construction and development. The, the the quality has to be best in order to reduce costs. Otherwise. Um, it it is incredibly expensive to provide bad quality product. So
0: talking about our subject to changing payer environment, um, we're being driven in a positive direction is what I'm understanding you to say. And, and, And a lot of it, you're talking about the consumerism, but we're talking about the information age. We're talking about better communication between doctor, patient. All of these things are benefiting not only the delivery of healthcare to the patient, but probably cost
1: and, and 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 the practice of medicine overall. Sure, let me, let me remind you why, when we talked about the name of this podcast, we used 2030, is because I personally, and I think there's enough evidence out there that healthcare is going to dramatically change in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. For the better. And to, for yeah. sure, without question, better quality care, better drugs, better interactions. Uh, you know, using, we talked about AI, uh, to, to develop new drugs, to find things that are wrong with people that nobody's looking at it because there's too much data to process. But I'm going to give you an example. And, you know, I got into the Internet way back into, in, in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, through the university. But think about what happened. Let me give you a 10-year time span as far as productivity and quality that were impacted by the Internet from 1995 to 2005. That, those 10 years for communication, okay, where, where those 10 years have been unprecedented in, 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 in US history or maybe human history as far as productivity. Then you take out there a little bit later when the smartphone, you know, literally the, 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 the smartphone era, whether you give it to Blackberry or you give it to Apple uh, and the iPhone, but that, then think, think about what happened, sort of plus or minus 2005 and six to 2015, 2016, OMG. Right. Yeah, Right. So what I think is happening and it started a few years ago, but what I think is going to happen between by 2030, healthcare is going to be materially measurably different. Okay. Because it's hitting that sort of J curve that is, it is price demand government. Yeah. We uh, talked about again, back to podcast number two is yeah. what healthcare costs are going to effectively double in the next 10
0: years. Yeah. Well, this has been great. I, uh, I've I've enjoyed this. It's uh, complex, but yet at the same time, we've got to deal with that payer environment. And um, the payers are evolving, uh, physicians are evolving, consumers are evolving,
1: and all in the right direction, it seems. Well, thank you, Carl. Um, look forward to our next uh, podcast and appreciate all those that are listening.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.